Comedy Bosses, we're happy to have the all-new FreshBooks as this week's sponsor. Find out more later in the show or check them out at freshbooks.com slash travel. Welcome to the Travel Like a Boss podcast, the radio show all about traveling like a boss by being your own boss. Stay tuned for weekly interviews featuring guests that have built their own online businesses. If you would like to have access to our entire back catalog, visit travellikeabosspodcast.com for instant access. And here's your host, Johnny SD. Hey guys and gals, welcome to episode 177 of the Travel Like a Boss podcast. I'm here with Grace Taylor from gracefullyexpat.com. Hi Johnny, super happy to be here. I'm excited for you to be here. In beautiful Las Palmas. Yeah, so... Grace was actually one of the speakers for Nomad City. And what did you talk about? I gave a short talk about tax considerations for digital nomads, which is obviously a pretty hot topic. I had to keep it pretty broad because I'm a US tax expert myself, but obviously at the conference were a lot of people from Europe and really around the world. So, okay. So, in a nutshell, what country has it best? Who has it easiest <laughs> as an expat to pay taxes? That, or not pay taxes? That's a tricky question. And I feel like sometimes people have a really negative impression about, oh, Americans have to pay tax wherever they live. Um, and that's true, but it's not all bad news for Americans, actually. Um, and obviously, I think as you're familiar with some of the provisions that you can use, like the foreign income exclusion. So it's not all bad news for Americans, but it is a lot easier for people from most other countries when you can kind of cleanly break your residency. Like for myself, for example, I'm actually Canadian, so I don't pay any taxes in Canada because I haven't lived in Canada for years. So it's um, it does make things a little bit simpler that way. That's crazy. So as a Canadian citizen, as long as you're out of the country for like even, what, six months? Mm-hmm. You can just not pay tax account anymore? Well, it's not always that simple. So for someone who had, say, a spouse or their kids that lived back in Canada, they might still maintain their Canadian residency. But for a single person who doesn't have a house or anything like that, yeah, it is, it's quite simple that way. And taxes in Canada are pretty high, right? They're like close to 50%? They go up quite quickly, um, especially at kind of lower income levels. And so for now, for example, I live in Ireland. And Ireland has, um, yeah, it's about the top rate is 40%. But you get to that rate really quickly at a fairly middle class income. So um, there's a lot of times there might be some incentive to kind of break your residency from these higher tax countries. Okay. So I definitely want to hear more about your story because it's pretty pretty interesting on how... I mean, because basically you are a digital nomad yourself now. You're working location independently. So you've done it yourself and now you're helping other people do it with their taxes. Yeah, that's true. Um, and I sort of, I guess I started out more as an expat um, because obviously I came from Canada. I worked in the U.S. for a couple, a number of years actually. Um, and that's where I kind of learned the U.S. tax specialty. And then in about, about a year and a half ago, I moved to Ireland again, sort of as a, an expat, if you will. I came with my company and they set me up with, you know, the visa and all of that official stuff. But then I kind of realized that there might be some benefit to going a bit more, a bit more independent. So um, that's when I, I decided to, I really quit my job and I decided to start my own business and we'll, we'll see where that goes from there. Okay. I like it. That, that's really cool. So out of all the places you've lived so far, what, like what has been your favorite so far? I, I know there's a lot more to explore. Yeah, there's definitely a lot more to explore. And I'm, I'm looking forward to doing a bit more kind of, probably similar to what you do really is, you know, spend a couple months in a place and get a feel for it. But of the places that I've spent a good amount of time in, I have to say one of my favorites would be Cape Town, South Africa. Really? Wow. Okay. I love it there. So I've actually been to Cape Town and I agree it's, it's beautiful. 
And I think the only problem is that it's in South Africa. (laughs) (laughs) And I feel bad because the people I met there are amazing once you get to know them. They really invite you in like family. Yeah. And Cape Town itself is beautiful. Like, what did you like about it? Ah, I loved, yeah, as you say, the hospitality of the people there is amazing. And I think you just, you get a really good lifestyle. It's a European kind of lifestyle, I felt like, where people are very sociable, lots to do outdoors. Um, and it's obviously the, the natural surroundings are stunning. Yeah, it's, so if you guys haven't been to Cape Town or known too much about it, it's basically like a coastal beach town. It kind of reminds me of like maybe like Huntington Beach or yeah. um, New, maybe Newport in California, but it's a lot cheaper. And it's, I would, I would say it's even more laid back in a di- kind of different way. But a big benefit is they have some of the best wine in the world. Oh, amazing. Did, Did you, you go out to yeah, Stellenbosch? I went to Stellenbosch. Ah, oh, so good. One of the, the best wineries out there. And it was so cheap. Yeah. I remember we did something like five wine and three chocolate pairing, like a taste, like a, ta- like a tasting. So you go there, you spend a few hours, they give you five different glasses of wine all locally produced and then three different chocolates and they explain everything and it's just like a really nice day out and you're at this you know you're in their in their vineyard so it's just beautiful and then it was only like i want to say like seven dollars a person that doesn't surprise me especially if you went in the last little while because the rand to the dollar is a really good value right now so when i was there in 2012 it was about eight rand to the dollar, the US dollar. And now it's more like 12 or 13, depending on the day. So you, you get a really good value. Insane. And then yeah. you can go out and have a really nice steak at like a nice steak restaurant yeah. and have a glass of wine. And it'll be, you know, probably a third of the price as if you had it in California. And I guess the only one of the downsides, though, is that it takes so long to get there. So you really kind of have to like the next time I go, I want to stay for at least three months. Yeah, so definitely I, w- I would recommend Cape Town. I-, I can see it being a good expat place. I yeah. don't think of it as a good digital nomad place just to hop to, just because of what you said. Where, I mean, I'm, like even though we're technically off the coast of Africa right now, mm-hmm. and Larissa, my ex-girlfriend who lives in uh, Johannesburg, she joked saying, oh, why don't you just pop by since you're in Africa? <laughs> and without even looking at flights, I-, I already know it would be a nightmare to get from Canary Islands to summer in Africa to yeah. Cape Town. Yeah. You'd probably actually have to go back through Europe or ma- mainland Europe rather. Yeah. Yeah. Which is pretty funny. So, well, uh, <laughs> that's that. So as far as uh, taxes, this is actually our third tax episode. Yeah. Uh, so we've had on a uh, Stuart who was on episode 161 and that yeah. one was called how to legally pay zero income tax. And we talked about how Americans can structure a, an international business company in a place like Belize and then have that, you know, do pretty much devour your US company. And we've also had on the guys from Greenback Tax Services a long time ago. I think that was actually episode like 12 or something or oh, wow. 10 or 11. It was like right in the beginning. So let's talk a little bit about kind of updates from, from that because I learned a lot since, since that time. And I think I want to talk about, so I was episode 11 with, um, David McKeegan, the the founder of Greenback. Oh, have so, to go back and check that one out. I yeah. heard the one with Stuart and it was great. Well, the cool thing about it is that episode came about because on episode 10, the one, one right before, I had on my mentor, Anton Creeley, talking about dropshipping. And we talked about how... I, that was like... This was, what, 2013. So this is when I first became a nomad. It was my first year ever making more than 
$15,000. And as the first year I had to pay taxes, that was going to be like significant. And it was also the first year that I was living abroad. Mm -hmm. So on episode 10, Anton just very briefly mentioned like towards the end of the episode that he had heard a rumor about something that we didn't even know was called the foreign earned income exclusion. Uh He had just heard of something about Americans not having to pay tax if we were abroad. So I said to him, I wonder if this power, this podcast is powerful enough to get on a tax expert <laughs> to talk about it. And the very next episode, we got on David, which was kind of like the introduction to the whole thing. Oh, that's excellent. And yeah, and Greenback are definitely one of the market leaders out there. So they're, they're pretty well known. Yeah, but they've been dropping the ball these last two years on my, my personal returns. So David, if you're listening to this, you guys need to step <laughs> up your game. So here's the thing is you're, you're absolutely right where they're definitely one of the market leaders where they were one of the, the, at least the first big companies kind of educating people and saying, Hey, if you guys aren't living in the U S, if you guys are expats or nomads, there's a way that you guys can save a lot of money. Yeah. Can you just briefly describe what the FEIE is? Yeah, absolutely. And I would say, like, I think it's great that there's options like Greenback and then now smaller um, offerings like myself, because if you're a U.S. person and you've always had your taxes done by, say, TurboTax or, you know, maybe um, you go to H&R Block, those guys are good for what they do. But the specialty around things like the foreign earned income exclusion, it's, it's such a niche area that you really want someone that knows how to handle it. So, and I worked in the big four for most of my career, which is great, but really as, you know, entrepreneurs, digital nomads, you don't want to pay big four prices. So that's why um, I think, I think it's great that there's more offerings that are out there available. So the big four is what Deloitte Intuition? and yeah, Deloitte, KPMG, EY and PWC. And they, what do they charge to do someone's personal returns? It's, it's pretty shocking actually. Um, I'd say if you got it for under about 2000 bucks at just out the gate, you'd be doing well. Okay. But a lot of people, I mean, it would go up from there because a lot of times what the big four deal with is they deal with companies. So the employee who's the expat living in France or Spain or South Africa, they never really see the price, but the, the big four uh, really do charge the company a lot for that. That makes sense. So I guess it's good if you are a remote worker in Cape Town and Deloitte offers to pay for, or your, your, your company offers to pay Deloitte for your taxes. You don't have to deal with it. Yeah, exactly. But then as soon as that person, for example, goes independent themselves, they're still going to need tax support, but they're not going to be able to probably, or they won't want to pay the big four prices. So okay. hence they'll go to someone like Greenback or like myself or like Stuart. So kind of just off topic, what are the, I guess... What are the potential downsides of switching accountants? Because normally people just kind of find someone and they stick with them forever. Yeah. And the ups- upsides will obviously be your your local accountant in Milwaukee that you you know you grew up you know next to. Yeah. Was probably great when you had a job in Milwaukee. Exactly. But now that you're living in you know wherever Mabul, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know it's um, or Malaysia or something. Yeah. People they they don't have that expertise, so it's going to be. Either they're not going to be able not to do it, or mm-hmm. they're going to be ultra conservative because they're not really sure what to do, or yep. they're just going to have to charge you more. Yeah. So, but what are the, so the upsides would be that you know switching to someone else, you know whether it's you or Greenback or another service, there's that upside. But what are the downsides of let's say switching accounts every year for every tax season? Ah, uh, yeah. You know that's that's a good question, and I think probably one of the biggest barriers is just it's a lot of hassle. 
to send your paperwork over. And it's establishing a relationship as well. So you, you want someone ideally that is responsive. So especially when you're dealing with them mostly remotely, you're not going to be able to sit down in front of them, at least not every time. Um, so you want to have that reliability and that trust factor. And I, I'd say switching every single year is probably like not worth your time just because the last thing you need to be spending your time on as an entrepreneur is dealing with taxes and paperwork. But once you find someone that you do have a good relationship with, do that transfer once and then next year it's going to be that much easier because all they're going to do is they're going to review your file from last year, ask you if anything changed, and hopefully it's going to be a pretty low-touch process. Okay. So let's say someone did want to make the switch. Do they just send you last year's tax returns or what do they need to send you? Yeah, that would be the first step is I, I always want to see what happened last year because to be honest with you, a lot of times when I look at what happened last year, I see some improvements that could be made. Um, and that's not to say it's, it's not that someone necessarily did something wrong, although I've seen that as well. But sometimes it's just it wasn't as optimized as it could be. So yeah, but the first thing I want to look at is what happened last year because then it, we can see if we need to make any amendments or changes um, or even just make a different election. And then beyond that, it's, you know, your accountant probably isn't going to ask you for every single receipt for every expense. And if they do, that's that's a bit overkill, I think. Um, so just, you know, base, the basics of the income, whatever expenses you're claiming, um, and then depending on the structure of your business, really, it goes from there. Okay. So would someone need to kind of keep track of like, so like, let's say, let's say someone made a switch to you. Mm-hmm. Would I need to send you just last year's prepared return or do you need everything from that return, like all the W-2 forms or 1099s? Absolutely not. Okay. No. What what I would look for actually is a, a good first step is if I can look at last year's return from there, I can pick out all the different income sources and everything that I'm going to ask for for this year. Um, so then I don't want to see last year's 1099s, but if you have 1099s from this year, yeah, that, okay. that would be perfect. Good. Perfect. So what are some things that make it really complicated? Like, because as nomads, here's here's a kind of the problem is mm-hmm. we like to kind of dabble on everything, right? Yeah. So I have personally like 10 different income streams and some of them aren't that significant. Some of them only make like a couple hundred bucks a month or a couple, even maybe a couple hundred, hundred bucks a year. Yeah. Does that make your job a lot more difficult to have, let's say, a ten, like a bunch of 1099s from like for Amazon, for example, is yeah. a huge pain in the ass because <laughs> if you sell a Kindle book on Amazon.com, and yep. then Amazon.ca and Amazon.au, yeah. they send you separate 1099 forms for each one. And I might only sell two books in Australia the whole year. Right. And But it's a separate 1099. Does that make your job a lot more difficult? It doesn't necessarily because really those are probably all within the same overall like business structure. So we, we can lump all those similar business activities together and then whatever related expenses you have. Like, so I, I couldn't speak, obviously I haven't seen anything related to your personal situation, but if somebody was filing on like a 10, on a schedule C rather as like an independent contractor or like self-employed sole, sole proprietor, we would put all their income from that business activity on the one line, whether it's from one 1099 or from 10 um, and then all the related expenses would go on that same schedule c so once it's related to the same business activity okay so what if someone let's say let's say not me because i, I don't want it to do with me but yeah. let's say someone who was kind of like me right yeah. where they you know they had their digital nomad and then they had a blog and that but that you know but that problem but everything's kind of like lumped in to one like yeah technically some of the money's from book sales technically some of it's from course sales technically some of it's from affiliate and but he's just like, you know what? This is just one business. Just yeah. put all, lump it all in one. Yeah. Like, is that okay as a start? 
Yeah, I think that's totally reasonable because they're all from a related business activity and you, you have different income streams from that same business activity. But again, it would get, it gets a little more complicated depending on the structure. So if you're again, like just a simple sole proprietor that you haven't incorporated at all, um, then you throw that all on your schedule C. But depending on your structure, if you get into some of, for example, the stuff that Stuart um, advises, which is great, but then you have like an LLC and then it, it, it gets a bit more complicated from there. So a lot of people have actually asked me, like, I want to start my first blog or something. They're like, yeah. should I get an LLC? And I've been saying to them, I'm not a tax accountant, yeah. but just start simple. You know? Exactly. So are there like, from what I, from what I read, and please correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong, is if you're not making money yet, like, or even if you're making like, let's say you're making less, anything less than even a hundred thousand a year from your online business, just start as a sole proprietor. Okay. I agree with that completely because it's, I, I think that the worst thing you can do is let the tax stuff stop you from moving forward. So yeah, just start out as a sole proprietor and then it makes your taxes really fairly simple. And then if you find you need or want some more complexity or if your business leads you to that, then cross that bridge when you come to it. Yeah, But okay, I'd say just, yeah, obviously for entrepreneurs, like just get started because the last thing you should do is let something as silly as tax kind of stop you from growing your business. Definitely makes sense. So for the first two years, I was a digital nomad. I was just a sole proprietor. And then after I started making, like say over 150 grand a year, I was like, okay, maybe I should get an LLC now. Uh, if anything, just to protect like assets. So it's, so it's everything's under business, not under my name. But and I think yeah, it, it makes sense for your tax and your accounting and your sort of um, support that way, it makes sense for that to grow as you grow as well. So for someone just starting out, like someone like Stuart is is pretty elite and, you know, they, they might not have a need for that kind of complexity and nuance yet, but hopefully they'll get there one day. So, but, you know, it's, um, yeah, it's great to just start out as simple as you can. So speaking of that, that was, if you guys haven't heard episode 161, that was the one with, with Stuart that we keep talking about. And... In that episode, to kind of sum it up, he talks about a way where you can, you know, you can get a an international business company like one in Belize, and then have everything kind of go through that, and then that way you're only responsible for the taxes of what that company pays you, and then by being out of the U.S., you can take advantage of the foreign income exclusion, so that you're not paying taxes on the first hundred thousand. So essentially, in a lot of cases, you can pay pretty much zero tax. And I finally went through that route. This is my first year doing it, but Honestly, I'm already, I'm like regretting it um, <laughs> because I'm like, this is so complicated Yeah. because now instead of everything just going under my sole proprietor, just myself, yeah. now I have to deal with like juggling, like, okay, like the money has to go into this account and then mm. Bank of America sucks so bad, especially for nomads. If you're out of the US, actually, I have sponsors on the show. Bank of America will never be a sponsor, no matter how much they pay me, because they are the worst company in the world, just putting that out there. And their online banking is terrible. Their customer service is terrible. And every time I get paid through like some kind of international like wire transfer, it's every deposit costs me $15. So if someone wants to send, you know, send me $5 for an ebook, it's a $15 fee or something ridiculous. So aside from them, you know, them making my life harder, now, Instead of me just having everything go through like a personal bank account or personal credit card, now I have to have, you know, business bank accounts, business credit cards, mm. and it definitely complicates things. Yeah. And I think, you know, 
there's there's good reasons for all of that. But as you say, for the person that is just starting out, that hasn't really crossed that hundred thousand, you know, threshold, it's it's not a hard and fast number. But if you have that in your head as a rough kind of target, if you will. Um, once you're below that, then just the simple foreign earned income exclusion is really probably the best way to go. And it is it is quite simple, as you say. But we, we might actually just talk a bit just to kind of remind the um, listeners sort of what the parameters of that are. Yeah, please. So um, it's a way for, again, each word of that foreign earned income exclusion is significant. Uh, so it applies to earned income only. So that's income that's from your services either as an employee or as a self-employed person. But it doesn't imply, apply to, um, one, number one, it doesn't apply to self-employment tax, which is a separate calculation, and it doesn't apply to business income. But if you're a sole proprietor, it gets you out of the federal income tax on that, but it doesn't get you out of the self-employment income. But it's an exclusion from tax. So what it means is if you meet the requirements for it, then you can exclude up to a certain threshold of earned income per year. Um, and it's right around 100000 It goes up a bit each year for inflation. And there's, broadly speaking, there's two ways that you can claim it. There is the uh, physical presence test and there's the bona fide residence test. Um, and sometimes this trips people up because bona fide resident means that you really have to be a resident of a of another country outside the U.S., physical presence test, it's simply counting the number of days. Um, so, and, and all those days don't have to be in the same country. So that's one way that I think um, digital nomads can make use of that. Yeah, that's exactly what I've been doing. And so it allows us to be in the US for basically 35 days total. Or if actually, it's actually the opposite where you have to be out of the country, you have to be in a different country for whatever. Uh, 330 days. 330 days, yeah. which is a bit confusing because little things like I think being in the air doesn't count or being on a cruise ship doesn't count. Nope. So what I do is I just make sure I'm in in a different country for at least 335 days just to give myself a five-day buffer. Yeah. Because would you get screwed on the whole thing if you miss it by a day? Well, it depends on how many, like how have you been claiming it in the prior years? Um, so in your first year, for example, and I think a lot of people don't actually understand this. So for example, if you've been living in the US um, for your whole life and then you move or you become a digital nomad, say in August, um, from August to December, obviously you're not going to exceed the 330 days. There's not enough days in, left in the year, but you can claim a portion of it for that year. So it's, you don't have to wait until your following year's tax return to claim it. You actually are able to claim, say, what would that be? Five out of 12 months worth of the exclusion. But one thing you have to do is you have to wait until you've met it in the following year, met the exclusion number of days in order to file that year's tax return. Okay. So that makes sense. It's, it's one way that as a digital nomad or an expat, you might require an extension from past April 15th to file your tax return because you're waiting until you've counted enough days to meet that test. Okay. And in general, like once, once it's all kind of set, are people counting it from like January 1st to December 1st or from April 15th to April 15th? Well, the simplest way to count it is from January to December, but it's actually 330 days in a 12 month period. So that means that the 12 month period can start or end at any point in the year. Okay. That definitely makes sense. And, and so that's what Greenback explained to me as well. But so here are the kind of just some issues that I've had on my personal returns yeah. is, I w- I've been definitely out of the country for more than 330 days a year, probably for the last like eight years. But the first six didn't really count because I wasn't making any money. Yeah. But then, so that first year, my accountant on, for Greenback was like, oh, don't worry, we can just start it at whatever month. And it all made sense. But then when I got my returns, I was like, okay, this, it doesn't look like it was, 
it was counted because I got another letter from the IRS saying mm. like, oh, we're not going to count that. And I think it wasn't a big enough deal where I was like, oh, I'll just pay it. And I think it was a $800 fine or something. And then I, was, I kind of let that go. And then last year or something kind of, well, it's not last year. So this year, just about a month ago, something similar happened. And I was like, I'm, I'm not paying this fine again. So I like, I've, you know, replied to my, my accountant. She didn't get back to me for like three weeks. Mm. So then I, I got a little bit frustrated because I had this bill that was incurring interest yeah. and she wasn't getting back to me. So then I CC'd David McKeegan, uh, who's the CEO. And then right away, the next day, he's like, oh, you know, don't worry on top of it. It's all solved. And then I somehow, not only did I not have to pay the $800 penalty, yeah. I got a check from the IRS for $5,000 yeah. as a refund. So I'm a, I have no idea what happened because they didn't explain it to me. I'm just guessing that they went through and they found other things. So when they sent the letter to the IRS saying like, oh, no, he really does get this deduction, they also found other th- other other things that I overpaid for. Yeah, it's it's tough to comment on that without knowing the specifics, obviously, because I know as, as busy entrepreneurs, you really might not always be aware, but it's possible that maybe even you sent in some kind of estimated tax payment earlier in the year. And then because of what they were able to do on your actual tax return, that was more than you needed to pay. So that's what you got back. So I, I have no idea, but that's a possibility that could happen, certainly. Um, and then I would say as well, the IRS, um, they're a government bureaucracy, just like yeah, you would expect. And they, they do their best, but they definitely don't always process things properly. So getting notices like that is not uncommon. But I would say, obviously, you know, I'm sure they were doing their best to respond and they have high volumes. But yeah, getting, getting a quick answer on that is good because you don't want to be incurring interest. Yeah, so I I think you're definitely right on that. And I think the reason why I've had these kind of hiccups with Greenbacks last couple of years is because they're just overwhelmed because they're really at least the most pop, they're definitely the most popular expat tax service. Yeah. And they're one of the few ones out there that people even know about. Yeah, exactly. And because of podcasts like mine, we've been sending them like hundreds of people, which is probably another reason why David got back to me so fast. (laughs) But I think they're just overwhelmed. Yeah. And I think my, my accountant, she's a CPA. She, I think she's from every time I spoke to her, she's super smart on top of things, but I just assume she has like a pile of, of people that she needs to, to help. And that is just, she's overwhelmed. Yeah. And partially, I think this is kind of the entrepreneur's dilemma where, uh, as a green, like from David McKeegan's, you know, standpoint, he wants to grow his company, right? And obviously he wants to make it more profitable. He wants to grow the company, have more clients. But the downside to us as customers is when they grow or scale too fast, often, you know, we get kind of left behind because it loses that personal touch. And I, I feel like, you know, the accountant thing, the, the, the tax thing is a very personal thing. It is. Yeah. And you do want to have that. You want to have a good relationship. And that's why, like, I think that it's great that there are offerings at all different levels because you could go from the, the very simple, like no personal touch, hands off, just upload it all to a site, have someone that you've never, you don't even know their name, prepares your return, gets back to you. And that's fine. But that's great for the the simple stuff. And then as you progress in your business and as you progress sort of just in growing your net worth in general, I think you are going to want some more personal assistance. I mean, for, for all the entrepreneurs out there, whatever stage they're at in their business, um, hopefully they will get to that stage one day. And then once they do, I think they should be prepared to to change their, their relationship and to, you know, to find the, the newer providers when, if and when it's needed. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And actually Greenback just sent out a customer survey asking that, saying, would you prefer... 
like do do you need the same person preparing your tax every year or can you just trust us to have you know one of our people do it as you know and that and just as fast as possible yeah. you know as soon as possible and i think the way, so way i answered it was like no i want the same person because i've been with them for a few years now and you know i want that relationship especially cuz now like my my situation is a bit more complicated but i think that if i was just starting out if i i know for sure if i was just starting out I wouldn't care, but like, no, just, just have somebody do it. I don't, you know, I don't care which cook is cooking my food. Yeah. I, I trust the restaurant. You know, yeah. I know the restaurant's going to be consistent. I know it's going to be good. Yeah. So I think that's actually where they're going to thrive is if they switch their model to just saying, like, this is what we do. We're not a one to one in person. Yeah. Setting uh, the expectation. Yeah. Like, you know, we are, you know, you just have to trust us. You know, don't worry about who your preparer is. They're all going to have the same standard. We're going to do it on the back end. You're going to get your your stuff taken care of. But yeah, the, I think the great thing is that increasingly there's just that much more choice out there in the marketplace. So hopefully, again, if people if the providers are transparent about what they are offering and then they're priced accordingly, you know, for the the impersonal hands off, you know, we're going to send it off to our farm of of qualified tax preparers. But you know, they're all just working away there, and you're not going to get a personal phone call, for example. That's going to be priced one way, and then all the way up to the very personal like. I'm your person and I'm dealing with you directly. That's obviously going to be at a different price point for the most part, but it's great because it gives people choice out there. So I think that that's really a win-win for everyone. Yeah, definitely. And I think the only only kind of other thing that, that makes it hard is someone like me where hopefully like even though you're starting in the beginning where you don't really care because you're not making that much money, after two, three, four years – when you start making more and you're more complicated, it's kind of annoying to have to move away from them. Yeah. So I think what they should do, if so, David, if you're listening to this, <laughs> you should have like a um, boutique option or something. Yeah. Where then they can hire people like you or or others and pay you, you know, and have the wage be a bit higher, so you actually want to do it, <laughs> and also uh, so us customers will pay a little bit more, but then we have that one on one versus you know uh, having to leave greenback and then find something like that you know yeah that's true and although you know i think like there's sometimes a bit more fear about the the sort of hassle of switching providers than there necessarily needs to be because it's they should be able to make it fairly simple and and sort of low touch for you um they should be able to kind of give you a list of here's exactly what i need and then once i have it then let me just go and work away and I'll come back to you. And then one thing I also would say is um, just as a tax professional myself, I find it really important that whoever I'm working with really understands what's going on. So if you're getting a refund or if you have to make a payment, like you should be asking your provider, walk me through this and do the math for me. And if you don't understand, it's really up to them to make you understand uh, because it's not, um, there's no magic behind it. They can actually explain to you step by step exactly why really down to the dollar you're getting back what you're getting back. Yeah, I, I guess that definitely makes sense. For me, I just always kind of like, it's almost like a hope and prayer at the end of the year. I'm yeah. like, please don't be more than $20,000 in, you know? It's that uncertainty that's yeah. the problem. And I think that's really unnecessary. And I think for people, if they, if they get some good tax advice at the outset, and maybe they, they have someone do some kind of rough estimated calculations for them, set them up on, say, maybe some type of quarterly payment plan if they are going to owe. Um, if they're not going to owe anything, then have someone do a calculation as well, just so you have that peace of mind. Because then, yeah, I, the, the worst thing is to be waiting around for April 15th, how much am I going to have to pay? And it's really unnecessary if, if people get the right advice up front. Hey guys, let's take a real quick break so I can hopefully get you paid. So as a small business owner, I know I personally forget to send out or follow up on invoices all the time. 
And I bet you, if you, especially if you're traveling a lot, you might too. And the problem with that is we are leaving money on the table by either completely forgetting about people who owe us money or haven't paid their invoices on time. So whether you're a freelancer, you're a small business owner, or you just need to collect money, if you are bad with numbers or with following up, you'll definitely want to check out the all-new FreshBooks, the cloud accounting software. So my favorite feature is probably their automated late payment reminders. What that does is it allows FreshBooks to help you avoid that awkward talk or that conversation with the client, even that awkward email about past due reminders. So FreshBook automates the late payment email reminders so you can spend less time chasing payments or having awkward conversations and more time working your magic and actually getting things done. FreshBooks is offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial to my listeners. To claim it, just go to freshbooks.com travel and enter travel like a boss in the how did you hear about us section. So let's say you had a client that signed up like now, right? Yeah. Would you be able to give, you know, do, do like a rough calculation by like, you know, by the end of the year, like December 31st or something? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that that is, that's a really reasonable ask from like an initial kind of consultation perspective is, um, sort of give me the numbers, give me like just, and estimates are fine as well. Um, and then that person can plug that into a calculation and say like, listen, here's the exclusion amount for the year. Here's what I think you're going to land. One of the things about the exclusion is if you have earned income that's in excess of it, it's not always well understood, but anything above the exclusion actually hits at the higher tax bracket as opposed to the lower. So for example, if you made say 120,000, um, that 20,000 isn't taxed as though that was your first $20,000 of income. Um, so it'll fall at least at, you know, probably the 28%, uh, rate. So again, it, these are just things that any accountant really, once you give them the estimated burst, they can plug it in and give you a rough idea of what you're going to owe, if anything. Okay. That definitely makes sense. So what are some things that we can do as customers to make your life easier? <laughs> cause, cause I, all right. So, so definitely things that make, I, I'm assuming make it more difficult yeah. would be for us to wait to the last minute, yeah. send you a bunch of paperwork on April 13th or something, <laughs> April 10th, and be like, please have this done in two days. What are some things that, that can make your life easier, which hence I assume would make our lives better as well? Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, the last minute stuff is really the worst. And, you know, being as organized as possible is, is always good. One of the things that I've definitely been asked to do in my career is kind of here's what we call it a shoebox return. Here's literally like a shoebox full of papers, receipts, statements, and it's not organized. And, you know, if I have to spend, you know, 20 hours going through all of that before I can even start doing your taxes, that's an exaggeration, but it's, it's not out of the question if something's complicated enough. That is, that's definitely going to be really reflected in the, the cost of, of the compliance for the year. So I'd say for entrepreneurs, digital nomads, keeping things as organized as possible, whether you have your own Excel spreadsheet, whether you use QuickBooks or some other version like that, that's fine. Just as long as kind of everything's in one centralized place. And then ideally, like that's what I would like to do is is see everything in one place and then refer the supporting documents from there as needed. Okay. So what if, and and this is what I do. Tell me, tell me if I can make it easier. Basically what I do is I just have a separate credit card for all business expenses. Yeah. And then at the end of the year, I don't even send the statements. I, I send that year end summary. Yep. And I just say, this is, these are all expenses. Yep. And then just in case I have the receipts, like 
in my inbox or somewhere else, but I don't even send those. I just kind of have them just in case. Exactly. Yeah. And it, it doesn't hurt to keep those again for your own purpose for if the IRS were ever to question, which is fairly unlikely, but it's, it, it can happen, I suppose. Um, so yeah, keep, keep that supporting documentation for yourself, but your accountant does not need to see that. And so then, yeah, that would be ideal for me personally, because when, I was preparing someone's taxes, what I would do is I would look at their last year's return. I would see all the types of expenses that they had. If all of those were reflected in that summary statement, I would say, great. And then the only question I might have for you is, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't see any expense for insurance or for cell phone or whatever on this particular statement. Did you have that as well? So then we, um, we as your tax preparers can ask you like pretty targeted questions that hopefully you can answer in five minutes or less. Okay. That makes sense. So definitely pro tip for people is to have a separate credit card for businesses, even if it's a personal credit card, right? Yeah, exactly. Because then you, you don't need or want your accountant to see all of your personal expenses. It's totally irrelevant. Um, so yeah, if you can keep those all separate and then they're only seeing really what they need to see. Okay. And that makes sense. And then as far as, I guess, income, is it just whatever, whatever form, legal forms you get, like a 1099, you, they just, they give it to you and they're like, okay, this is, this is it. So yeah, that's that's a question that always comes up. And obviously now increasingly people are having income streams from all over the place. Um, and it might not always be reported on a 1099. So here's how I break it down for my clients is if it's reported to the IRS, I need to see that form because the IRS will match the 1099s, the W-2s. 1042S. There's there's a whole smattering of forms that are, if you get it on one of those type of forms, the IRS gets that information as well. So we need to tie that out. But if you have income that's not on that one of those type of forms, it still needs to go on your tax return. But I don't need to see the statement if you got it from some someone in Germany or someone in Malaysia or something like this. And again, like your accountant is not trying to audit you. So if, if you say, listen, I have all these 1099s plus I have X amount that's not on a 1099, that's all we need. Okay. So one of my biggest fears is always like, I'm really bad at my finances and, and I could probably, so that's probably something I can do better. Right. <laughs> but sometimes I like, I'll just forget, you know, let's yeah. say there's a $20 payment that like someone gave me that, and they don't send me a t- like a form. Yeah. I'll just completely forget about yeah. it. Yeah. And like, is how big of a deal is that? That's a pretty minor deal in the grand scheme of things. But once those start adding up over the year, I'd say if you can just Throw that into some kind of spreadsheet. That's helpful because then you can say if it if it totaled up to whatever it was a thousand, two thousand, you know, ten thousand. Then just tell your accountant that number. Another thing that really is is true is we don't always know the exact dollar amounts, and sometimes things are in different currencies, and sometimes currencies fluctuate. So if we're giving an estimate and we're doing a good faith estimate that's based on the best facts that we know them at the time, that's fine as well. So we'd, we'd be a bit conservative in that case, but you know, you'd round up a few dollars and call it good. Okay. I guess, all right, that, I guess that makes sense. But like in general, like let's say someone complete, like let's say some company was supposed to issue a 1099 oh. and they didn't. Yeah. And then you completely forgot about it. Yeah. And it just, and then what, like, what would happen if it actually went like the IRS was like, Hey, like, what is this? Well, I'd say the worst case that could happen is the IRS goes, oops, you forgot this, and they send you a notice, and then you pay what they ask you to pay. And then, you know, there probably would be some small amount, uh, depending on the amounts we're talking about, but there would be some amount of interest and late payment penalties. But really... The IRS, they're, they send these notices and they, they can seem scary, but really if, if you pay them and you, you, if, if you agree with what they're saying at least, um, if you don't, then you can go back and forth and write them a response and that's all fine as well. But yeah, w- once you send that, that payment, then it's, the matter is done. So it's. Okay. So like when you see on the news of these like 
you know, actors or, or sports people yeah. getting thrown in jail, it's because they ignored these, these, pay, like these, um, penalties. It's not like they didn't pay for one year and then all of a sudden they're put in jail. Exactly. They're probably like, ignoring it for years and years and years. And, you know, I I will say it's, I, I've seen, you know, less high profile people have much higher amounts that the IRS says they owe and they might disagree and they might go back and forth for years over this kind of thing. And that it happens, you know, it's a relationship where you, you kind of both sides really have to come to some kind of understanding and some kind of agreement. But, you know, I think that sometimes those high profile cases, sad to say, it's almost like they're making an example and I think that the intent is to kind of keep a bit of fear out there in people. And really, if you're doing your best to comply, and then if the IRS does disagree with something, they will let you know and take that seriously, obviously, and get some professional assistance in replying to it. But don't lose too many sleepless nights. Okay. That definitely makes sense. So so as, as far as for the non-Americans, yeah. all right, is there... Are there anything like any kind of real big differences? I, I know this is kind of broad, mm. but like for for example, in, in your talk, what are some things that like they can kind of think about if they're, if they're not American? That is a really good question. So one of the biggest things, and I think sometimes this almost causes a little a little more uncertainty actually, because as an American, you know you need to file something. So once you have that taken care of, you kind of have that peace of mind that I've done what I need to do. If you're from somewhere else, and let's say you've broken your residency in your home country and you don't really establish residency in another country, well, it's possible that you aren't actually considered a tax resident anywhere. And that really, you know, you have to mind your amount of days and your facts and circumstances in all of the countries that you spend time in. So that was one of the things that I I talked about at Nomad City here. But I think sometimes there's almost a little bit of hesitation, like, is this really okay to be a non-resident in every country? And I think the answer is yes, with some kind of provisions. Um, such as for certain types of financial transactions, they're going to want to see some kind of like tax reporting. And if you haven't reported taxes anywhere for a couple of years because you haven't been a resident anywhere for a couple of years, just be prepared that you're going to have to kind of do a little bit of explaining around that. And I would say for people that aren't sure, for the peace of mind there, you really would want to get some professional advice to just give you that double check, like, yep, I think you're good, or nope, I think you spent a few too many days here. You might have to worry about country X, Y, or Z. Okay. So even if they don't have to file return, it's probably in the best interest to still speak to an accountant and say, and kind of just double check. I'd say it wouldn't hurt at least, um, at least once, you know, you might not need that ongoing support. You might not even need to talk to them every single year, but yeah, give, give someone just a buzz and just have a sit down and have a chat initially when you're starting out on your nomad journey. And then as you go, as your business grows and as your circumstances change, then keep in mind that when you make a significant change, when you change how many days you're spending in a country, if you're spending longer than six months, for example, that's a big red flag that you're going to want to talk to somebody from that country. And one of the challenges that we find out there that I'm still trying to figure out what the best approach is, is as a U.S. tax expert, I couldn't advise you if you had a Thai tax filing. I might be able to tell you, listen, I think you're getting close to the the threshold here in Thailand, but I don't really know what to do about that. So one of the challenges that we're going to need to face is building those networks of, ideally, it would be great to have someone to refer people to in every country. So if there's a Thai tax expert out there, give us a shout. (laughs) Okay, makes sense. So I know, so you're, you're... You probably do U.S. taxes, yeah. but you're also Canadian, and yep. you've also kind of lived abroad. Yeah. So, if like who can like who can you give advice to? Like, say, I know you do uh, Skype consults. Yeah. 
who can call you basically i th- i mean for me personally i would advise anyone who's a us citizen or a green card holder and if they are living or working outside the us for any amount of time um and they you, one thing i would say is even for the person that maybe doesn't spend 330 days outside the us but you're spending a good amount of of the year still contact somebody because there might be something we can do there and there might be well another thing actually if i can go off on a small tangent is uh there is a separate reporting requirement for non-U.S. bank accounts, which I think some people are familiar with. It's called the Foreign Bank Account Reporting, FBAR. And that is required to be reported and disclosed with your tax return. Um, there are penalties involved if it's not reported. So anyone who, even if they don't qualify for, say, the foreign earned income exclusion, if they're banking outside the U.S., if they have some other accounts or some other business ventures outside the U.S., your return is going to be more complicated, so get some proper advice there. Okay, and, and but that's only for accounts over like ten thousand dollars. That's exactly it. Yeah, and then the other people that I would be happy to speak with are the reverse when someone is not from the U.S. but are coming into the U.S. to work for any amount of time. So whether they are even even if they're actually on a student visa or if they come in for three months or you know they they want to be careful about their US tax obligations as well and that's another niche that i think is almost even less well covered out there in the marketplace because as a non-resident sometimes um you might actually have a filing requirement to file a US tax return so again if if that's the case um those people should be reaching out to someone to talk to as well okay makes sense so you had briefly mentioned things that can complicate people's yeah. returns, right? Uh, and I think actually while we we're having tapas <laughs> the other night, you had mentioned something about options trading. <laughs> Why does that make things complicated? Well, just because you would need to be reporting all of your um, your put and call transactions on your Schedule D, for example. So that it depends on the volume there. But if you have, if because you'd get a 1099 from your broker, and if if that 1099 is you know a hundred pages, like that be aware that your accountant is going to have to really kind of go through that to a certain extent and it's going to take them some time. So, Oh, so they can't just look at the, the end number saying like in total how much you've won or lost? They usually, they sometimes can, but I've seen 1099s where, for example, if someone didn't buy whatever security that they're trading from that brokerage, they might not have the basis reported. So um, if we can get a little kind of tax nerdy here, you your accountant needs your, your basis and your proceeds to calculate your capital gains and report that on the Schedule D. So if the 1099 doesn't include the basis, we're going to need to track that down. Otherwise, the entire gross proceeds is going to be reported as capital gain. And that's not good. So that's just one example of where they're going to need to do a little bit more digging through and it's going to take them a little more time. Okay. So if you guys want to know more about options trading, we had Kurt Plelis on from Option Alphas on uh, the other podcast, Invest Like a Boss, episode 64. But it sounds like in general for digital nomads, unless you want to get into that full time, it's not worth doing just like if you don't want to overcomplicate your taxes. Yeah, maybe so. Although it's it's not... I wouldn't say that anything to do with taxes should ever be a deal breaker for someone's business because we can always figure out how to make it work. But again, it's just, it might take a bit more time and it might cost you a bit more money, to be honest. Okay. So any other things that like just complicate taxes that maybe maybe we should just consider before we get into it? I'd say one of the things I always look for is, um, for particularly if you're an American, a lot of people might own a property somewhere else around the world. And if they do, and if they're renting it out, again, just to kind of reiterate that well-worn provision that Americans report worldwide income. So that rental property that you have in Panama or Belize or wherever, 
if it's earning income, it needs to be reported. So again, I just ask people those questions just to remind them in case there's something they might have forgotten. And then I would say as well, like the, the foreign bank account reporting, it's not that difficult, but it's something that you need to be aware of as well. Um, so your, your tax preparer should be asking you that question, definitely. Um, because now, um, this is a bit tax nerdy as well, but in recent years, um, the foreign bank account reporting is now harmonized with the, your regular tax return. So they're both filed at the same time. Whereas used to be the F bar was on June 30th. So. Okay. So, or pro tip, just have less than 10 grand in each bank account in each country. Yeah. All right. So actually my, uh, my co-host of Invest Like a Boss, Sam Marks, had a ton of headaches because he owns a bunch of storage units in Hong Kong. Mm. And he didn't realize that like the income that he gets from those storage units yeah. affects his U.S. taxes. Yeah. And he said it was a huge headache. Yeah. And th- those type of things, like they're not necessarily obvious. So that's why um, I'd say as digital nomads and entrepreneurs, if you're having any significant dealings outside the US, it doesn't hurt to just have a chat with someone because they can remind you of those things and kind of talk about your business and your your holdings and your just everything you've got going on kind of holistically. And then you can kind of get a good picture and a kind of a good action plan to move forward. Okay. So let, let's, let's, let's just break down a game plan for, for most people. You know, regardless of when you guys are listening to this, it's probably a good idea to start organizing your, your tax stuff for next year. Don't wait until, till April. Is it a good idea for them to send you their 1099s as soon as they get them or should they wait until like a certain date? I think it's fine to send that all in one kind of batch. Um, and then another thing that I, I find out there, and maybe some of your listeners are familiar with, um, if you have K-1s from partnerships, a lot of times the K-1s are not ready until much later in the year. So that's fine. If there's a few bits that we're waiting on, we can get the return kind of 90% there. And then once those few kind of last forms that we're waiting on come in, we get it over the line at that point. But yeah, the, the majority of your stuff, if you can get it to your tax preparer, January, February, that's ideal. If you can have your information organized kind of in and around the end of the year, that's perfect as well. Because really by the end of the year, everything has already happened. So if you need to make any small changes or any anything that needs, if you want to, you know, if you have an expense that really um, you could have it in January or December, for example, like you can make those decisions at the end of the year. Okay. That makes sense. So right before the end of the year, if people know they're going to spend a lot of money on taxes, what are some things they can just buy really quickly in December <laughs> to offset that? Like give money to charity or like what else? Yeah. Well, giving money to charity is obviously great, but it won't always help you on your taxes um, unless you're actually itemizing your deductions. So it's, it's really hard to give a, a few things that will apply to everybody because everybody's situation is so unique. So I know that's not the the great action point answer that we can give all your listeners, but I think the best thing they can do is if they're working with somebody that knows their situation, that person can answer that question ideally. So send them an email and then they can give you that personalized advice. Okay. All right. So as far as like organizing like our expenses, yeah. uh, we've talked about having separate a separate credit card for all business expenses and sending that year-end summary that your bank gives you instead of the monthly statements. And as far as keeping receipts, yeah. so I've read something like anything less than $75 at a restaurant, you don't need to keep the actual receipt for. Is that is, is that more or less true? Yeah, I think that's a fair rule of thumb. And for the most part, the IRS will really not be asking you for receipts for those amounts that are that small. Um, if you have really significant expenses, then the documentation you have, just keep it. Don't, you know, delete those statements or anything like that. But 
I have never in my career, I've never found it a problem to substantiate legitimate expenses. So we can, whether it's a credit card statement that we can go back and find somewhere. I mean, it's, it's usually not that hard to reproduce. Okay. Cause I've had a huge argument with my, my buddy Chris about this, where he said a credit card statement is not enough that you need the actual receipt. And then I argued saying, well, obviously it's better to have both, Yeah, but I can pick up receipt up off the floor and claim that's mine. If I don't have a credit card statement, how do I prove that was mine? So in my mind, I've always just done credit card statements, but is that enough? I'd say what people do in practice out there, that's probably the the majority of people would go with that approach. And increasingly, a lot of times we might not even keep the paper slip for longer than five seconds before it ends up in you know the garbage. So yeah, I, I wouldn't lose too many sleepless nights over not having those paper receipts for those, you know... $50 dinners. Okay. But if you're going to have a big night out, big dinner, you're entertaining clients or whatever, you should probably just take a picture of that receipt. Yeah. It doesn't hurt. Exactly. Okay. Any like organization, like apps or anything that, that you've, you've seen people use to organize receipts? I think there's a lot of different options out there. Um, if you, if you use some type of business accounting software, then that usually gives a perfectly usable summary, that's fine. Yeah, I'm going to have to actually figure out some good apps that are out there because I'm sure people would rather just put it on their smartphone on the go rather than wait until they get home and get on the software. But even even an Excel spreadsheet is actually fine. It's As accountants, we're used to dealing with whatever people give us. So whatever format works for you and whatever makes it easier for you to organize, I'd say is what you should use. Okay, very cool. So I've just been taking pictures and just having them just there somewhere. Yeah, so if I like really need save to pick them, them up. in Evernote or something. That's... yeah. Okay, so I can do that. I have in my Google Photos auto backup. But actually, our, our sponsor this week is actually FreshBooks. And so they're a cloud accounting software, and they actually have an app for receipts. So you guys check them out. Yeah, I'm going to have to have a look at them as well. I keep hearing the name out there, so I'm sure they have great stuff. Okay, very cool. And then what, like, what, what other kind of like last-minute advice do you have for people to properly organize things? I, I would say probably it's a better idea to hire an accountant now before you need them than to wait until last minute. Yeah, exactly. Because if, you know, a, a, a good tax preparer at, you know, April 1st, even, they might be fully booked up for the rest of the month. And if you, you know, ask them, you know, please, please, please help me, they actually might have to tell you, like, I'm sorry, I've, I have other clients that have booked me, you know. So yeah, the, the best thing would be to establish a relationship, get that comfort level, get that level of, I really trust this person. Um, and I feel like they're going to be responsive to me because I feel like being responsive is probably one of the biggest complaints I hear out there. And then the other advice I would really give is don't let taxes become so overwhelming that you just put it off forever. So you'll feel so much better if you just sit down and have a chat with someone and realize that it's not rocket science and there's no problem that's really unsolvable. Okay. Is it ever too early for someone to hire you for the next year or is it a better idea just to book it now? I don't think it actually is because I would be really interested to learn something about someone's um, business structure and just make sure I understood what was going on. If I had to do some research or if I had to, you know, network with some colleagues to figure out the best approach. Um, yeah, it's never too early to do that. Okay. And that way they can just lock you in and know that you'll be available for next year. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. So if you guys want to work with Grace, go to gracefullyexpat.com and you can click work with me and you can either hire her to do your taxes for next year or you can do a phone consultation where she has pretty reasonable rates if you guys, if you wanted to chat on the phone about your, your plan and get a consult. Absolutely. I would be delighted to talk with anybody. So thanks, Johnny. Yeah, you're very welcome. And so just to let everyone know what my personal plans are, 
I've been using Greenback now for the last couple of years. And even though they've kind of dropped the ball the last two years, I'm going to give them another chance. Mainly because, honestly, even though it doesn't seem like a big deal to, to move, it probably isn't a big deal to move things around. I've had like my relationship with my account now. And I think because of my personal situation where I had this podcast and... I have access to the CEO. He's like really been, you know, like watching my account and make sure everything's okay. And also it seems like he's, he's from talking to him, he seems like he's really dedicated on streamlining their services and making them better for everybody in the future. I think their route, who I would recommend Greenback to would be people who have a very, very basic type of location independent business where you're sole proprietor from the US, you get like a couple 1099 forms a couple expenses, nothing crazy. And you're making, I don't know, I'll say for anyone making less than a hundred grand a year and it's not complicated, they're probably a fine solution. I would say for anyone that has a slightly more complicated solution, or if you want that personal one-on-one touch, go with someone like Grace. And then if your company's paying for it, then then I guess you can go with (laughs) big companies. But I mean, so just to be perfectly honest, the, the, the kind of upsides and downsides I see is I think going with someone like you is the best for like that personal relationship. But my biggest fear is then if you get like overwhelmed, like I'm almost afraid that, you know, like let's say everybody listening to this just signs up with you. Yeah. You're going to get overwhelmed and then you're either not going to be able to accept them or you're not going to have time for everyone. Yeah. And then if you drop the ball, I have no one like, you know, like I can't like complain to your boss. Yeah. And that's actually why I think people go with thing like companies like KPMG or those big four is because not only does, you know, your personal CPA, like they're, they're accountable to you, like literally. Yeah. (laughs) But then if they like, you know, if they're not, then they have, then you can talk to their boss and the boss can sign it to someone else. Yeah. That's perfectly reasonable and totally understand that concern. And that's why I would say like, just Get, get to know a person before you work with them. Because like as a professional, I would never, you know, accept a client if I didn't think that I could properly um, serve them to the highest level. So yeah, I would, you know, if, if, if you see somebody out there that you're interested in, just shoot them an email, get in touch with them and um, just see if, if you build up that level of trust, because, you know, that's, that's really the best way to go about it. Okay. I like that. Uh, and the only reason why you bring that up is Chris, my buddy has had a terrible time with, his personal taxes where I, I would just assume, I don't know too much about it. I assume he, he put it off a little bit, but then his accountant got busy with some personal thing mm. where she didn't get back to him for two or three weeks. And his taxes were like, uh, going to be due, like his extension was going to be, do, be due in like two days. And it was a bit, and he had a really complicated situation because he sold his drop shipping stores and he had all this, he has, you know, he's, he has all these things happening. So from his situation, I would say, and and my experience, I would say, get your things together like ASAP. Don't put it off. I think the 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 couple worst things that someone can do is either besides putting it off last minute, I would say that's definitely a big one. But also just overpaying. You know, I think if any any of you are in that situation where you don't need to be in the U.S. for 330 days of the year, you can get a free vacation pretty much and live anywhere in the world. And save, you know, $20,000 by just not being in the US. And, you know, like imagine being able to live for free somewhere out here, like on the Canary Islands or in Thailand, just for being there. Yeah, absolutely. And so when, when you put it in that context, actually paying a few extra, you know, you know, a few extra hundred dollars more than you're used to paying on your taxes, it kind of w- works out in the end in your favor anyway. So people shouldn't be um, 
too worried about the complexity that comes with their taxes with being an expat or a digital nomad. Um, they should, as you say, look at the upside. Yeah, definitely. I, I like that a lot. And for you non-Americans, you probably have an e- even easier, especially if you're Canadian and you could just have spend six months. You could spend the, the, the terrible six months of the year outside of Canada and save a ton of money. So definitely do that. And if you guys want to relocate to a place like Grand Canary, that might be a good idea for a lot of people. Yeah, it's amazing here. There's tons of people out at the beach. Great food, great uh, atmosphere. I love it. Okay. I love it. So thanks again. Uh, if people want to follow you or check out your site, it's gracefullyexpat.com. That we'll have a link right. to it in the show notes. And um, that's it. Thanks for so much for coming on. Thanks, Johnny. This was fun. All right. See all of you guys next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Travel Like a Boss podcast. If you want to hear more, including the bonus, how to choose the perfect niche episode, join our mailing list at travellikeabosspodcast.com. See you next week. And remember, if you want to travel like a boss, you need to be your own boss. So start your online business today and start living the lifestyle you've always dreamed of.